Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Seth G. Benzel, Assistant Professor at the Chapman University Arduous School of Business and Economics. We will discuss his work on how to understand and regulate Facebook, which he co-authored with Avi Kallis. So welcome to the show, Seth. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm delighted to have you on the program. I'm really glad my colleague, Ramsey Woodcock, recommended your work to me. And uh, I think it's really especially timely, uh, given how much people are talking about the regulation of Facebook and other social media platforms right now. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit, by way of introducing your work to listeners, about how your work differs from other work discussing the regulation of Facebook? Sure. Um, So thank you again for the opportunity to talk a little bit about my research. So um, my paper, which builds a model of Facebook in order to ask questions about what the consequences of different sorts of regulations would be uh, with Avinash Kallis, differs from previous work, I think, in two main ways. So the first thing that I think really distinguishes our piece from previous academic work is we go and actually try to build a model of Facebook. So what does a model of Facebook mean? So in an economic model, you get a bunch of agents who all have goals, and then you sort of specify their goals in order to understand what they're doing right now and what they might do in different possible circumstances. So the agents in our model are everyone who might potentially use Facebook services. And we're focused here on what's sometimes called Facebook Blue, so the core social media app. Um, And those are people like you and me who have to make a decision every day about, am I going to log into Facebook today to interact with somebody? And then the other big agent is Mark Zuckerberg himself, or you might say the shareholders of Facebook, who are making decisions about uh, Facebook quality, how many advertisements to show, and basically how intensely to monetize usage of Facebook. So while previous academic research has made sort of general statements about how one would regulate social media platforms, ours is really the first paper that quantitatively models how each of these agents interact, their network effects on each other, and how they would respond to different circumstances, which, again, is what you would want in order to make good predictions about what would happen in different scenarios. So I would say that that's sort of, you might say, the empirical contribution. Um, For those of you who are sort of more interested in the economic theory, um, there are certainly previous uh, researchers who have looked into um, sort of theoretically, mathematically, how can you model these social media platforms or just sort of any multi-sided platform. So any sort of, maybe I should define that term. So we think about Facebook as a multi-sided platform. And what we mean by that is a type of business where the main value from that business isn't coming from just creating a product. You know, Facebook doesn't just make a widget and sell it to everybody. 
Rather, the value of Facebook comes from network effects. It comes from people use Facebook, other, and then that attracts other people to use Facebook. No one would use a Facebook that no one else uses, right? And so that's a platform business. It's a business that's built around network effects. And we say it's multi-sided because it's very important precisely who is using the platform, right? So in the context of social media, there are some users who can use a platform like Twitter and create lots of value and attract lots and lots of users, right? So you might imagine um, someone like a, a, a Kim Kardashian on an Instagram attracts lots of people to use Instagram. But on the other hand, you can always have uh, trolls. You can have people who get attracted to a platform and create negative network effects uh, by just sort of being bad actors. And so our model of Facebook takes into account this sort of multi-sidedness, this, this degree to which different sorts of users have different network effects and different preponder- uh, propensities to use the platform by breaking up America into 12 different demographic groups by age and sex. Um, and so uh, in our model of Facebook, what we find, and we calibrate this model with surveys, uh, what we find is that a lot of the value of the Facebook sort of flows from younger and male users to older and female users. So anyway, so that's the multi-sided part of it. Um, so like I say, other researchers, sort of theoretical economists, have looked at this sort of class of problems, um, and their approaches have generally used an a, a a mechanism called an insulating tariff to make sure that whatever sort of equilibrium the platform wants to achieve, they can jump to immediately. So this is maybe a little getting into the weeds, but sort of previous economic models of platform. So think about people deciding to use a platform, right? So my decision to use Facebook is a function of whether you decide to use Facebook. Now, it might be that because my decision to use is a function of your decision to use, there might be multiple equilibria, even for the same level of Facebook quality, which let's say just for the sake of argument, their main dimension of quality is how many advertisements they show us. So even if Facebook, the platform decides we're going to show such and such level of ads, if no one uses Facebook and no one expects anyone to use Facebook, no one's going to use Facebook. So that might be one equilibrium. No one uses it at a certain level of advertisement. And then another equilibrium where um, at that same level of advertisement, let's say 75% of the population uses Facebook, right? What an insulating tariff is, is it's sort of an economic fiction, which allows these theoretical scholars to say, well, I'm going to announce to everyone who uses Facebook that we're going to set such and such level of advertising And I'm going to guarantee to everyone that 75% of the population will use Facebook. And if so help me God, and if that doesn't happen, I'm going to owe everyone lots of money, right? Um, And so then when individuals are saying, oh, am I in the state of the world where we're at the equilibrium where no one participates or the state of the world in the equilibrium where where 75% of the people participate, well, I've got insurance from Facebook. And Facebook has promised me that if I use it and there's under subscription, they're going to give me some sort of goodie. And that's a way that Facebook can sort of nudge everyone to the equilibrium that they like. We think that this is sort of a, a real fiction, that it doesn't really happen in real social networks. That no one, Facebook's not going out there guaranteeing certain levels of Facebook participation with cash handouts. 
rather what we're thinking, the way we model Facebook is you're at a certain equilibrium. And then if Facebook decides that they want to change the level of advertising or there's some sort of shock to Facebook quality or some sort of shock to Facebook participation, we're going to reach a new equilibrium through a series of cascades. So, for example, um, Facebook decides to raise advertisements on a group of users, number one, that lowers their participation to a certain extent. And then everyone who likes users of group number one are going to lower their participation to a certain extent and so on and so on. And you get to a new equilibrium, which is the one that arrives naturally from a disturbance of the initial equilibrium, rather than this sort of previous approach that sort of you're, you can jump to whatever equilibrium you like. So uh, there's the, uh, just to summarize, the empirical contribution is we actually go out there and we, through surveys, we're able to calibrate one of these models. And then sort of the theoretical innovation is that the new equilibrium we arrive at is local and achievable. It's not sort of jumping all over the place, potentially, with respect to new equilibria. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the data that you used to construct this model. Sure, great question. So again, whenever you have an economic model, the most the things you need to know are what are the goals of the different agents, right? So from the perspective of users... What we need to know is how much do they care about users of other types on the platform? So how much does um, a kid care about his grandmother being on Facebook? And how much does a grandmother care about her grandson being on Facebook? Uh, So we need sort of, and you can imagine if we have 12 different population groups, we need 12 times 12 different bilateral effects. I need the effect of every population group on every other population group. So we need this matrix of network effects. Um, Then we need just sort of the elasticity of demand for Facebook, right? So what we need to know is if Facebook quality for your population group goes up 10% or goes down 10%, how many more or less of you use the platform, right? It might be the case that um, Facebook usage is bifurcated between some people who love Facebook and will use it no matter what, and some people who hate Facebook and will never use it. And then small changes in quality aren't going to actually affect the amount of people who use Facebook, right? It's going to be important for measuring social welfare, but the actual share of people who use Facebook isn't changing. On the other hand, if you have a distribution of people, so we, we model this through an opportunity cost. We say, what is the distribution of people's next best options other than Facebook for spending their time? And if you have a distribution of opportunity costs such that there's a lot of people right now who are right on the fence about whether or not they should use Facebook, then even a small change in Facebook quality can dramatically change the level of participation, right? And again, right, there's both that first degree impact, right, which is Facebook quality goes down and some people use the platform less. And then there's the cascades of additional impacts where after the first group leaves, additional groups leave because they miss the first groups. Okay. So on the user side, those are two things we need to know. The third thing we need to know from users are how much do they value Facebook making quality investments in the platform slash how much do they not like Facebook monetizing the platform. So the way we measure that is through the main way Facebook monetizes itself. So something either 90 or 95% of Facebook revenues are advertisements. 
Um, and so what we need to measure is sort of the disutility from advertisements that Facebook users get. So how much do they dislike having to suffer through ads to get through all the content? On the platform side, it's a lot sort of easier. We kind of already know what Mark Zuckerberg's goal is, or at least his big goal, which is to make money. So we assume that Facebook is profit maximizing. But on top of that, um, digital platforms are very interesting. And this is mostly just an empirical sort of finding that digital platforms want to get really big, right? They want to get really big. And part of that is through for these network effect reasons. And part of the reason is the way that you make the most money is by being big. But Facebook's profit, Facebook profit maximizing does not actually justify their current level of advertising. We find that the level of advertising on Facebook is too low if all Facebook cared about was maximizing present, you know, profits tomorrow, right? So why is that? Well, there might be a couple of different reasons for that. One reason would be that Facebook is afraid of people entering with competition, right? So in the classic, you know, you keep your prices down because you're worried about entrance. So this is a whole threat of competition argument. Another reason might be, well, Facebook wants a big user base on top of how much gets its profit maximized because in the future, they're planning on rolling out some new strategy of making money off of their users, so you think about Oculus Rift, which is uh, Facebook's foray into virtual reality. You think about Facebook Marketplace. You think about Libra, which is Facebook's cryptocurrency. And you can start to like add up reasons why Facebook would want a lot of users so maybe they can make more money off of them in the future. A sort of a third class of reasons would be that Facebook is worried about a phenomenon called unraveling. So one thing that can happen in a type of business that has really strong network effects is that you can kind of get the fatal cascade. You can get the cascade of just enough people leave, that just enough people leave, that eventually almost everyone leaves, right? And so um, we, call that mar- we call that platform unraveling. Um, and... In our computations, that's a phenomenon that you can get when there, when network effects are sufficiently strong and there are a sufficiently large number of people right on the fence about using Facebook. And you might imagine that Facebook kind of wants to be really far away from that point and sort of so as either insurance or as a defense against unraveling, they want more users than they strictly need for profit maximizing. Okay. So those are the kind of the four big, in addition to kind of practical things like how many people use Facebook, how much money does Facebook make, information that we get from Facebook's quarterly reports and information that we like get from the U.S. census. We're just interested in the U.S. population. Um, The kind of the four interesting economic parameters that we need to find are this matrix of network effects. How much does everybody care about everybody else? The elasticity of demand for Facebook. If Facebook quality goes down for one of these groups, how much less do they use Facebook? Um, disutility from advertisements. How much do people not like being shown advertisements on Facebook? And then fourth, what is Facebook's uh, motivation for keeping a large user base above and beyond profit maximizing? So how do we measure this stuff? Well, first of all, Like I say, a lot of this stuff is you can just get straight from Facebook quarterly reports. So you can measure how much profit that they're making from users of different types by combining 
their average revenue per North American user, which they report. And again, it's almost all advertising revenue. Um, and then you combine it with their advertising API. So if you are a normal guy and you want to go advertise on Facebook, you go to their ad API and their ad API will very helpfully tell you which groups are expensive to talk market to and which are less expensive to market to. Young people are more expensive to show ads than old people on Facebook. Um, and then in order to measure our remaining variables, these are these are the really hard ones, especially are the demand side ones, these elasticity of demand ones. We capture those through a series of wide-scale surveys. So we do online surveys of over 50,000 individuals, mostly through the Google, uh, Google uh, surveys platform. And there, to elicit these elasticities of demand, we ask questions of the form, uh, would you give up Facebook for a month for $5? Would you give up Facebook for a month for $10? These sorts of questions let you measure elasticities of demand. And we ask similar questions about having to give up friend groups of different types. And so combining those two, we're able to measure sort of a utility function at the agent level. It's obviously imperfect. Um, in an ideal world, you would want a real natural experiment, or you'd like to actually force people to give up Facebook. Like you'd like to, in a laboratory, actually say, here's $10. Do you accept it to give up Facebook? I'm going to check to make sure you actually did. Um, and although we didn't have the budget to do that ourselves, we, there is a paper using a very, very similar procedure uh, by Genskow and several others in the American Economic Review. And it, while they sort of have a different sort of part of this they want to measure than us, they also ask the same questions about, would you give up Facebook for $50 a month, etc.? and uh, actually do this in an incentive-compatible way, which is, like we say, actually um, compensating people for doing it and then taking it away and monitoring them. And they find very sort of similar average values for Facebook valuations. Um, what else do we have? I guess the final piece of data we bring in is we spoke to Facebook several times um, over the course of conducting this research, um, gave a presentation to their sort of internal studies group, and they were very, they would obviously have the perfect version of all of this information. And even if they didn't have it immediately, they would be able to conduct these sorts of micro experiments on their platforms to measure all of these parameters as precisely as they would want to. Uh, they weren't able, they chose not to give us all of the data we requested, which is perhaps not surprising, but they did give us some data on the frequency of friendships across uh, age and demographic groups. And those uh, roughly lined up with what we found in our survey measure of, you know, how likely is it that someone who's a 25 to 34-year-old man is a pleasure, is, is um, a friend of a 35 to 44-year-old man. And so that was another validation that our survey results are sort of broadly, broadly plausible. How, how then can the model you generated help us think about regulating Facebook more effectively and efficiently. So that's okay. So that's exactly one of the, one of the main reasons we worked on this paper and built this model is because we felt that we kind of felt two things. First, we felt that the conversation around Facebook antitrust and Facebook regulation was really too much living in the world of, you know, what are policies that 
seem, you know, on it, on their face seem to be positive. Uh, things like breaking up Facebook, things like, you know, fining Facebook, for example. But from an economic perspective, we're not interested so much in achieving any, we're, what we're interested in is what are the policies that are going to boost social welfare, right? We, we want to know not just, you know, does Facebook have market power? Because of course, Facebook has market power. We want to know what are the remedies that are actually going to help people. Um, and so in the course of our paper, uh, we are able to evaluate uh, six or seven different sort of policies that are on the table right now for regulating these big digital platforms uh, in the case of Facebook. What then does your research tell us about which kinds of regulation would be effective and efficient and which kinds wouldn't? And how do your findings line up with the kind of policy proposals that are currently on the table Sure. Okay. So why don't I start with this? I'll, I'll go, I'll work from uh, what we see as the most plausible policies to kind of the most fantasy policies. So in terms of what's out there right now, the first one I'd like to bring up isn't necessarily a strict regulatory intervention, but you might imagine this being a solution by legislatures or it's sort of arising de facto out of judges periodically fining Facebook, and that is taxing Facebook in some way, right? So one of the big complaints about Facebook is not so much how it operates or that it's anti-competitive, but simply the idea that the gains from the technology aren't being widely distributed enough, right? That, uh, and you hear this complaint, especially in Europe about American platforms, right? Which is Facebook comes in and Frenchmen are watching the ads, but all of the taxes are being paid in the United States. Well, little tax is being paid in the United States. But the extent that any tax is being paid, it's not being paid in France, despite these being French eyeballs. And if the French people are creating the value that Facebook is uh, monetizing, shouldn't we as France get a cut of that? And so France has implemented a 3% digital ad, revenue, uh, digital ad revenues tax that would be applicable to Facebook and other giant companies. I know that the uh, European Commission sort of as a whole has a bunch of things on the table for sort of making this a EU-wide policy. So kind of one sort of policy we evaluate in the model is what about just sort of taxing Facebook in order to redistribute the wealth that is being created by this technology? Uh, well, we find that a tax that would be incident on Facebook profits would actually be not a bad idea for solving some of these problems, right? So think back to what Facebook's, prop, what Facebook's goals are. So Facebook's goals are maximize profits, but also have a big user base. If you tax Facebook's profits, they're actually going to substitute into their other goal of having a big user base. And so if you tax Facebook's profits, it might actually lower the level of advertising, lead to a bigger platform with more users and more social welfare, and actually make everyone better off. So just to give you some numbers, in our simulations, we find that a 3% tax in America on Facebook ad revenues would collect, um, would collect a good amount of revenue, about 3% of Facebook's current revenues, which are uh, $1.8 billion per month in the United States. 
uh, but also boost consumer welfare by 1.3%. And, you know, 1.3% doesn't seem like a lot, but just think about how much and how often people are using Facebook. So we find that's a pretty positive policy we find. On the other hand, you might imagine this has been proposed, a tax that wouldn't be incident on revenues or profits, but rather a tax on the number of users, right? And so now thinking back again to Facebook's problem, if you tax the number of users, Facebook is going to substitute into its goal of having a lot of, of having lots of profits, right? And the way that Facebook boosts profits is by sort of de- by ramping up monetization, making less investments in quality, higher levels of advertising. And so we find that uh, a per capita tax on usage of Facebook that raised the same amount of revenue as a 3% ad revenue tax would still raise that same amount of money, but actually slightly lower consumer welfare and consumer surplus um, and reduce the usage of Facebook again by a very small amount. So if you are taking a view of Facebook, which is that Facebook usage is actually bad, then maybe you, because it's addictive or because it spreads fake news, then maybe another, then this would be one approach is to tax the number of users and to move Facebook in the other direction. Okay. So that's one plausible policy, which is out there is either a tax or a recurring fine that could be modeled as a tax. Another policy that people have discussed um, is doing different things to sort of boost competition in social media, right? And there are many different policies that are out there for how you would go about boosting competition Uh, People have talked about breaking up Facebook in various ways. And so you could break up Facebook either horizontally, right? So in the same way that Bell Telephone was broken up into many baby bells, and they all kind of do the same thing just in different places. Or you can imagine breaking up Facebook vertically. So this has been discussed such as unwinding Facebook's acquisitions of uh, either Instagram or WhatsApp or one of the big platforms it took on. So from the perspective of our model, A vertical breakup, so a breakup from a platform that does social media, but in a different sort of way than Facebook, we see as sort of not really boosting competition and rather as just sort of destroying the the quality of being on the Facebook product. So we don't see that as a particularly positive intervention, as long as you don't create competition. On the other hand, if you break them up in such a way that you do create more competition, uh, we find that that welfare could go up considerably. So what does breaking up in a way that boosts competition mean? Well, the, the main thing that's important here is interoperability, which is, I'm sure, a buzzword that has been going along around a lot in uh, platform antitrust regulation, which is the idea that content that's being generated by people on one of the competitor platforms can be accessed by people on the other competitor platform. Right. So let me sketch two universes for you. One is the universe where we break up Facebook into two baby Facebooks, but those two baby Facebooks are just monopolies for their populations. So maybe there's a Facebook for everyone on the East Coast and a Facebook for everyone on the West Coast or a Facebook for older people and a Facebook for younger people uh, with no competition between them. Or, or across, or, and no communication across them. So that's a bad outcome. We find that an outcome like that has the potential to destroy almost half of the social surplus that's currently created by Facebook. On the other hand, if you were to able to break up Facebook in such a way that didn't 
destroy the quality of social media. And there, the, the primary thing you need is for people to be able to communicate across these platforms. Uh, we find that that could boost social welfare by about five percentage points, right? Again, so it's not a giant increase, not a giant increase, but a pretty sizable one. Um, and I guess I want to bring up sort of two ideas there about, so how does our model feel about these sort of more radical breakup style interventions? I guess the first thing that we would say is that our model sees sort of the risk in breaking up Facebook as being a little bit asymmetric, right? We see if you break up Facebook and get two monopolies, you can really sort of destroy the quality of the service that we have online right now. But on the other hand, if you break it up the right way, you can get a moderate increase in social value, right? So there's a little bit of an asymmetry there. But the second thing I would say is that there are at least sort of some theoretical reasons why you might not want to achieve perfect competition with interoperability at all, right? And so the, the theoretical reason that has come up in the past is, well, a monopolist is better able to do the cross-subsidization, which is essential for building up a big platform. So if you think about like a lot of two-sided platforms that we use every day, so one example that's great is credit cards. So if you think about the way credit cards work, the users, me and you, we get points for using the credit cards, you know, assuming that we, you know, we don't screw up and we pay everything on time. If anything, we get paid for using the credit card, whereas the credit card service gets charged. They're getting charged three or four or whatever percent per transaction, right? And um, Jean Tyrol, the Nobel laureate who was sort of a leader in thinking about platforms, pointed out that sometimes you can create more welfare for the system as a whole when one guy has the incentive to subsidize one side and then charge the other side. With perfect competition, everyone gets charged their marginal cost. So there's a sense in which you can't subsidize one side of the market. If, for example, to go back to the Kim Kardashian example, suppose that Kim Kardashian will only use social media if you pay her a billion dollars, right? In a world where it's Instagram is the monopolist, they can say, I'm going to take that billion dollar hit to hire Kim Kardashian, and I'm going to make it up uh, by charging everybody else more, right? But if you think about a situation of perfect competition, where instead of having one giant Facebook, we have lots of micro Facebooks, which all communicate with each other kind of seamlessly, none of these micro Facebooks is going to have the budget to go out and hire Kim Kardashian, especially because the network effects that Kim Kardashian creates are mostly going to benefit users of other micro Facebooks, right? So that's a long way of saying that that is a theoretical concern that some people have risen, brought up for, well, maybe the monopoly is actually the best way of providing the service. And we don't find that. We find that perfect competition actually could uh, raise social welfare, again, by that moderate amount of about five percentage points. Sort of the most sort of far out scenarios that we consider are either nationalization or a policy called data as labor. So let me start with sort of the data as labor idea. So this is an idea that was initially promulgated by Glenn Weil, uh, uh, as among others. And the idea there is you sort of unionize all of the users of one of these platforms. 
and they get to collectively bargain with the platform on behalf of the users. Um, that could lead to sort of a, a number of possible outcomes, but the outcome that we model is one in which the union is really, really strong, and they're able to go to Mark Zuckerberg and say, if you want to have anybody use Facebook, you have to give us 99% of all of the ad revenues, right? Um, in that scenario, we actually find that to be the most positive possible scenario, and that's for a couple of reasons. So the first is we get that good redistribution. We get the users of the platform making the money instead of the owners of the platform. Um, and then the second is because everyone's getting a check in the mail for using Facebook, it wouldn't be a giant check. We're talking about, you know, on average for an American, something like $10 a month, maybe top-ish, right? Uh, if we're talking about all of Facebook's ad revenues. Um, but you'll still get more people using the platform, more people on it, more people creating network effects. And so it's also efficient in the sense of you get this really big user base that's really creating value for itself. And then finally, you might imagine that an additional positive of moving to this sort of data union approach would be that there would be more voice for users in terms of this, these are the sorts of ads that are really bad for us. These are the types of monetization that we really don't like. And you might imagine there are also efficiencies that come about in the monetization of the platform that way. Um, and then finally, you might imagine nationalization. You might imagine, you know, the government just sort of taking over the platform and running it as a public utility. Obviously, uh, there's plenty of sort of real life reasons to not do that. But we find that that would be about if you could implement it in such a way that was um, perfect, you might boost social welfare by about 10 percentage points. So maybe about twice as good as perfect competition. And you would achieve that by literally subsidizing use of Facebook. So on the margin, there are some people who uh, Facebook would be better if they were on it. And because, you know, these are just checks in the mail to consumers that's an incentive that's, you know, beneficial socially. People are getting checks in there. So we are valuing this continuum of possible options. On the one hand, in terms of reasonable stuff that we think is good, taxes, especially revenue taxes, are a good way of spreading the wealth from these platforms as well as increasing their value. Then in terms of more aggressive action, we talk about breakup, and we find that a bad breakup could really destroy a lot of value. But a well-designed breakup might moderately increase social value. And then in terms of sort of a little bit farther out there examples, data is labor. So sort of unionizing the users of these platforms is adds a lot of promise. Of course, the big challenge with data of la as labor is um, the kind of the fake user problem, right? Now that people are getting checks in the mail for using Facebook, uh, there's a lot of incentives for there are lots of fake people to start using Facebook. If President Biden were to come to you and say, hey, Seth, I need your help, right? People are talking to me about how we should regulate Facebook. I don't know what to do. What kinds of proposals should I take seriously? What kinds of proposals should I reject out of hand? How should I think about this question? And, you know, how should I go about thinking kind of holistically about this as an actual on the ground policy legislative problem? What would you tell him? So my main advice to Biden would be think very clearly about what your goals for social, what your goal, what you're trying to achieve with your intervention, right? 
So I can think of sort of three big interventions, three big things I would want to fix. The first is sort of the redistributive part of this, right? How do we make sure that ordinary people are benefiting from this technology rather than investors and, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg? There's a second part of this, which is kind of all the regulation of speech part of this, right? And how do we... uh, kind of make these digital forums, public digital forums, um, a place where good discourse happens. Um, and then there's a part of it, which is about, and you can make, that's kind of tied into like the power of these companies question. And then there's an issue of all of the other things that we're worried about with digital platforms. So addiction, um, d- data being, you know, stolen and used in inappropriate ways, algorithmic bias, et cetera, et cetera. To the extent, so again, so those are kind of, I might even aggregate those up into two. So, right. So it's, there's the, the question of who's making the money, the question of, are we doing it in an efficient way? And are we doing it in sort of like a socially responsible way? If Biden's main concern is the distribution problem, I think the results of this paper indicate that the solution to that is taxes and transfers. That if your if your if your main issue with Facebook is just that Facebook is getting too rich and the users aren't getting enough of the benefits, the clear solution to that is a tax on Facebook revenues. Right? Uh, Facebook will not quality based on this analysis. Facebook quality will not go down if you tax Facebook, and if anything, Facebook quality might go up if you tax Facebook. Uh, so that seems like an easy win-win sort of policy if your main concern, again, is just sort of spreading the wealth around and redistributing. If, on the other hand, you're more interested in these questions of uh, how can we build social media that's a responsible social media, that's reactive to the concerns of their user bases, that are, you know, responsible in how they uh, promote the discourse and, you know, make sure that we have forums for dissent and for angry dissent and for people to have opinions that are way out of the mainstream, but still it be a safe place that isn't, you know, putting people in terror groups. Um, I'm a little bit more optimistic in the long run about a sort of data union type approach where the users of platforms actually have a voice in how their data is being used and and, and regulated. I like the idea of the people who have a voice in how that's done are the actual users of those platforms rather than a legislature, which is made out of, you know, 70 and 80 year olds who represent, you know, constituencies that aren't exactly user base of Facebook. Now, admittedly, as time goes on, user base of Facebook and constituency of the, you know, (laughs) of Congress get pretty similar. Uh, But sort of in general, especially for smaller platforms, allowing the users to sort of have a greater voice in that process, I think is a positive way to go. Um, Obviously, there are other big challenges with these platforms, but I think in the short run taxes and in the longer run unionization, I see as two very sort of positive directions to go. And so the last thing I would say is, and then so what, what, what wasn't in that list, what wasn't in that list was breakup. 
I think that break a breakup could work if it was perfectly implemented, but I am worried that a breakup will not be perfectly implemented and that the the outcomes from a breakup are pretty asymmetrical in the sense that it done perfectly, we might get some small gains, but done imperfectly, we might just completely screw up our digital platforms for social media in particular and whatever else we intervene in in general. So Seth, in closing, do you think that your findings in this study and based on this model are specific to Facebook or are they generalizable to other social media platforms? And, and if so, why? So our findings are going to be pretty generalizable to platforms that share two key features of Facebook. The first main feature of Facebook that's important here uh, for thinking about um, the tax policy in particular are first that it has low marginal costs. So we don't have to worry too much about disincentivizing Facebook from, you know, whatever platform we're talking about from actually making the widget that's underlying whatever platform they're, they're creating. And then the second is for Facebook, it's such this big platform where there's not a huge, there is opportunity for trolling, but certainly not at the level where Facebook is price discriminating very well. What I'm trying to get at is, is that on Facebook, network effects are pretty much unambiguously positive, right? Pretty much the bigger Facebook gets, the better. There are certainly trolls on Facebook, but on average, Facebook is very happy to have another user of any type in any demographic group or any country in the world. If we were talking about a platform that had negative network effects at some margin or uh, just a big potential population of people that create negative network effects, all of a sudden these tax results, might uh, you might have to reevaluate them, right? So the tax results are kind of coming that that the platform is positive is coming out of this result that Facebook wants a big user base. And um, at the margin, more users is good for the users who are already using the platform, right? But you might imagine a platform where the marginal users are actually destructive of network quality. You ever heard of the term the eternal September? No. uh No. Okay. The eternal September, and I'll, I'll close with this little anecdote. So I've spent a lot of time talking today about like positive network effects and while platforms like Facebook should try to get as giant as possible. But back in 1993 or so, there was this effect that was noticed that every September, a new generation of kids would come to college and gain access to the internet and join these Usenet groups. And it would take a while for them to be inured to the norms and the politeness of these Usenet groups, right? And so, you know, in September, you get a wave of trolls and eventually these people would become habituated. And then during the rest of the year, you'd have nice, beautiful, Edenic early internet. But then something that was noticed was sometime around 1993 or 1994, there was this quote unquote eternal September where a, a wave of ignoramuses and trolls came onto these Usenet groups and never disappeared. And that, and we grow onto the internet we have today. So there are certainly some platforms where the marginal user, the guy that we're thinking about attracting on might actually lower the quality of the platform. And to the extent that that's the case, well, you might want to try to incentivize uh, the platform with other instruments than just taxes on revenues. 
Well, Seth, thanks so much for coming on the show today. The paper is great. Your explanation was fantastic. I think this is super timely and important and a really um, unusual, provocative and novel take on regulating social media platforms. So thanks so much. Thank you so, so much. Can't, uh, can't think of higher praise. Silk, what?